Hey, deserving listeners, this is chapter four in my attachment theory deep dive. In this episode, I'm going to talk about society, culture, I'm going to talk about ethnicity, I'm going to talk about parenting around the globe and how that affects attachment. I'm going to talk about how some attachment styles don't show up in other parts of the world. In fact, the United States tends to have a particular mixture or a presentation of attachment styles that really just don't even exist in other parts of the world. And this was unknown to us at first because we didn't conduct research outside the United States. I'm going to talk about gender and politics and how the culture of texting and our phones are related to attachment figure. I'm going to talk about can can men be uh, just as good as uh, can can be just as good as facilitating attachment as women in early children's lives. I'm going to talk about materialism in our in our society and how that's related. I'm going to briefly talk about the mil- military. I'm going to talk about how bigotry and racism and sexism is are related to attachment insecurity and how that how that is and the theory behind that. Talk about marginalization, bullying. I'm going to talk about conspiracy theories. So there's a lot of connection between conspiracy theories and attachment theory that, you know, why do some people believe in conspiracy theories whereas other people don't? Well, I think attachment theory provides a very cogent explanation as to as to why that happens. So let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. As with the other chapters in the Attachment Theory Deep Dive, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. I think I'm going to talk for at least a couple hours about this. Um, So if you want the full episode along with all the other deep dives, you have to go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. Um, when you become a patron of the podcast, you'll get some swag. You'll get the benefit of knowing we we donate to charities. We just gave away a two thousand dollar scholarship to a student who was going to have to drop out of school because she wasn't able to afford her doctorate um, uh, tuition. And so, uh, uh, become a patron and know that you contribute to I think very wonderful causes like that. So do so now. Go to patreon.com and become a patron so you can listen to the full episode. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Okay, so let's get into society and culture. So, so far, I have been talking about attachment, and I haven't been referring to culture or region or ethnicity or gender or power at all. I've just been blanketly referring to all humans as having this attachment need and attached behaviors and recommending things for everybody. And in general, it's, it's, it is universal and it has been found universal and I've, I've found, found it to be universal. But this doesn't mean that culture, ethnicity, region, power don't play roles because of course they do because they play a role in, in every aspect of our life. So the, there are many things that I could say in this uh, talk, but let me just highlight one particular thing because I think it's like tip of the iceberg to, to many other things. So, depending on where you're from and depending on the cultural practices of parenting in that region, and I say region because people often say ethnicity, but really what we need to be talking about is region because I have students who will say, uh, My client is Latino, and I'll say, Great which Latino country are they from? 
and they'll be like, oh, I don't know, I think Mexico. And I'll be like, um, <laughs> you have to be more specific than that. And then sometimes they'll say, I, you know, I definitely know my client immigrated from Mexico. And I'll say, what region in Mexico? <laughs> Are they from Mexico City? Are they from the south? Are they from the north? Are they from the, the Gulf Coast? Where are they from? Are they Tahurumaran? Are they from, you know, they're, it's, it, it'd be like saying um, to someone in Mexico, I'm from the United States. And that means almost nothing because the, the wide variety of cultures in the United States, right? You have a, um, you know, second generation Jamaican living in Queens, New York. You have me, a half Japanese, half European American who has ancestry going back to the 1900s, all the way back to the 1600s, who has lived primarily in the Seattle area, but grew up in a somewhat suburban slash rural area outside of Seattle as a kid. But then, you know, there's a lot of variety in the United States. You got uh, a cowboy in Texas, <laughs> if I might be stereotyping. You have someone from Cleveland, Ohio. You have someone from Miami. You have someone from San Diego. You have someone from Montana. There are widely different cultures. So just saying you're from the United States is almost meaningless in the same way that saying you're just from Mexico. So when we talk about uh, different cultures and different parenting cultures, we really should be talking about region and I'm starting to tell my students, what region are they from? Because if I just say ethnicity, they'll often identify nationality, which is not necessarily ethnicity. You know, you wouldn't say, I'm American ethnicity, right? You, you have to say, I'm, you know, anyway, I hope you get my point. So when we're looking at different regions around the world, one region we want to look at is Japan. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to generalize to all of Japan not because it's a monoculture, but it is one of the more monoculture nations in the world. Uh, having said that, I, I'm guessing a lot of the research that has been conducted on Japan and parenting and attachment style is centered in the main um, uh, you know, population centers, Tokyo, Osaka, that kind of thing, but I'm not sure. Anyway, so Durrett, Otaki, and Richards in 1984. So this is as attachment theory is starting to gain some popularity, it's still pretty obscure to the, you know, compared to the vast majority of other theories. But some people are starting to look into it and they're like, okay, well, we have John Bowlby, we have Ainsworth, Mary Ainsworth, who has come out with these uh, experiments and many other people have repeated it, but they're all in the United States and they're all looking at American children and primarily white kids, honestly. And also primarily white kids with their mothers. And what they have found is that 70% are secure and about 15% are preoccupied and about 15% are avoidant. And, you know, there's some small percentage of dis disorganized kids as well. Well, what about other regions in the world? Well, Durrett, Otaki, and Richards in 1984, they're like, okay, let's use the strain situation procedure to examine attachment in Japan for children. And they found a very interesting finding, which was that there were no avoidant children in their culture. 
or it was so rare that it, it, it didn't produce any kids in the lab experiment. They only found secure and preoccupied. And I'm not sure if they were looking at at uh, d- disorganized, uh, particularly at the time, because I don't know if it was a very popular construct. But anyway, they found secure and preoccupied, and which was extremely strange, right? It's like, well, wait a second. How come we have no avoidant children? That doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, if you half of insecure kids in the United States are insecure and half or half of them are avoidant, half of them are pre- preoccupied. And again, remember I'm using term preoccupied because I want a, some uniformity of language. What they would call it, it was anxious ambivalent. But anyway, I hope you get my point. Is this was very controversial at the time because the researchers were like Look what we found, and aren't we awesome? We have discovered something new. And the American attachment researchers were like, well, you must have done it wrong because there's no way that there isn't a single avoidant child in in Japan. It doesn't make any sense. And this is before the awareness of cultural differences or the awareness of the importance of cultural differences. Um, so uh, today, of course, if you uh, particularly listen to this podcast, you know that uh, culture plays a large role. Socialization plays a massive role in personality, psychology, parenting, interpretation, uh, research bias, blah, blah, blah. But it's just one study. So, you know, who knows? Well, Takahashi comes out two years later, uh, rip. Uh, replicated the study in Japan and found the same result. Only preoccupied kids, no avoidant kids. Now, this isn't to say that there were less insecure kids. I actually couldn't find the um, figures on that. But from what I understand, they, you know, in the United States, you had 30%-ish insecure kids. Half of them were avoidant, half of them were preoccupied. Well, in Japan, you had 30% insecure kids, but they were all preoccupied. So now the controversy really heats up because now they're like, well, wait a second. You have two different researchers finding the exact same thing in Japan. And, you know, what's going on here? That just, just doesn't make any sense. So, of course, some people started saying, well, no, duh. Uh, the strange situation pr- pro- procedure is, you know, specific to American culture. And either avoidant children are is something that is specific to American parenting culture as opposed to Japan parenting culture or the procedure and the interpretation of the child's behavior is only applicable to measure attachment style in American kids. So either attachment is different around the world, which makes some sense, or the procedure was geared to measure American kids. And maybe there are avoidant kids in Japan, but, but, the, but the procedure is not set up to actually ca- capture the, those data because it's geared towards American kids. Keiko Takahashi, a couple years after that, she starts to speculate and look at this uh, from a, you know, a commentary point of view. And she pointed out that in Japan, parenting involves the parent being much closer to the child in general. There's a lot of messages from Japanese parents as opposed to American parents that the child should stay close to the parent. Um, and so as the 
if you have a child who is experiencing mistreatment or neglect or problems, then the child doesn't really have a, the avoidant coping style available to them because they can't really get away from the parents. So the only coping style that they have available to them if there is mistreatment is a preoccupied style and maybe disorganized as well. So does that, I hope that makes sense to people. That when, so when you're a child in Japan, well, let me start with the United States. So you're a child in the United States in general, and you're being mistreated somehow. You're being abused. You're being neglected. Your parents aren't being quite attuned. There's, there's just some kind of problem. Well, in the United States, children have two choices. They can either lean in and become much more attentive to their parents and try to game the system, so to speak, so that they can get love and attention, or the child can turn away from the parents and just avoid them altogether and try to just forget that the parents exist at all so that they can just soothe themselves and depend on themselves. Well, and this is dependent on, at least in part, on what the parents are allowing in terms of their, uh, their, their distance from the child. So, for example, a, uh, you know, two parents are depressed or alcoholics or something, and they tend to be a little um, standoffish with the kids, and they, they tend to allow the kids to play outside at the age of four by themselves and this kind of thing. Well, if the child is, is being mistreated and feels abandoned, neglected, alone, then the avoidant attachment style is much more available to them because they can just sort of disappear from sight. They can go down the street and play with other kids or find other parents in the neighborhood to attach to or something. So whereas if you had a parent who didn't let the kid out of their sight and at the same time was abusive or neglectful, then the child doesn't really have avoidant the, the avoidant strategy to uh, available to them. They have to maybe use the preoccupied style. So the idea is, is in Japan, uh, because of cultural parenting practices that are passed down through generations and are, um, you know, give, there's a lot of messages to parents on what's acceptable and unacceptable, that the kids are just kept much closer to the parents, and so therefore they can't develop avoidant attachment. And so other countries, other researchers in other countries started to come forward and ask this question too. They're like, well, we've been depending on all this, all this research from England and from the United States, John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, Fonagy, these people, but does this really apply to the rest of the world? And there are researchers in Israel and Mali and West Africa and South Korea and they all found very similar results, that they had no avoidant kids in their region. And it, the speculation was it's probably for similar reasons, that the United States has a very particular kind of parenting that is odd compared to the rest of the world. And I've talked about this before in other podcasts. Now, again, the variance within the United States is quite large, but in general, com- bell curves compared to other regions in the world— Americans value independence much more than other cultures. That you know, it's it's one of the funny things when because as an Asian American myself, Japanese American myself, I have even though I'm fourth generation and really barely understand Japan. Like when I go to Japan, I really really felt like a foreigner, you know, 
and I had white friends, you know, completely blonde, blue-eyed friends who knew way more about Japan than I did, spoke the language, blah, blah, blah. Whereas me, I was just like, I have no idea what's happening. So, uh, so you know, if, if I was born and no one ever told me I was Japanese and they just said I was born with a little bit of a funny eye condition or something, um, I would never have even known I was Japanese. Do you know what I mean? Um, but anyway, I have taken it upon myself to to get to know Asian cultures more just because of my affinity for my heritage. And what I found is that I, I, I find it funny when Americans gaze at Japan and at China and Korea. Like one of the things that, because uh, it's such a different culture, it's so, so far afield from American culture. And the, the, the way that I kind of think of it is like the Pacific Ocean is is vast, right? And there's not a lot of cultural exchange across the Pacific Ocean, if any, uh, prior to industrialization. And so uh, cultures tend to uh, bleed over into the neighboring regions, right? So France and, and England affect each other, and and France and Germany affect each other, and Germany and Russia affect each other, and you know Germany and Poland affect each other. There's like a sort of bleeding of cultures across space and borders. Well, you can't get any further away from each other than Seattle and Japan. And so the culture between those two places prior to industrializations would by definition be the most likely to be the most different. And so that's why when we look across the Pacific, it's like we're looking across the galaxy and uh, just being like, whoa, what is going on over there? And one of the things that I find that's funny, or not haha funny, but notable, that when um, you know very American people who don't aren't really aware of Asian culture, they'll, they'll look at Asian cultures and they and they and they find that it's really funny how obedient they are. That's one of the things that uh, they will point out. You know that Japanese or Chinese people they're just like robots or something. Now they would never say this out loud because they would know that would be racist, but. But they'll think things like that, you know, like they'll look at China and the um, oppressive government, the because, you know, China controls the media and blah, blah, blah. And so Americans look at that and think that's, you know, it's so awful. But when you have a, a, in a and I hate the term collectivist, um, but I'll just use it in this term. I won't explain why. Well, maybe I'll explain why I don't like the word collectivist. I think I've talked about this before. I find that a lot of white people just reduce Asia and East Asians to collectivist culture, which is a extremely simplistic way of looking at literally three and a half billion people coming from um, thousands of different cultures. Um, you know, like the West Coast of the United States, you could say is one culture, even though you really couldn't say that because you have you know, various different cultures on the West Coast. Well, let's just say you have the West Coast. Well, the West Coast of the United States comprises of what? Uh, I'm going to take an estimate of 30 billion people. I'm not sure. Or not 30 billion, 30 million people. Uh, maybe a little, you know, plus or minus 10 million. I'm not sure. Um, well, that's just 30, you know, 30 million people. And when you have more and more people, you have more and more variance in culture, right? And so, uh, 
East Asia, Japan, China, I- India is three plus billion. And so you're going to have a lot more variance of culture. Anyway, <laughs> my point here is that um, the, the, the difference in the way that the, they value things and the, like, just for example, I have, so in Korean, South Korean people are, are pretty different from Japanese people. And one of the things that they're um, different is that South Korean parents are heavily involved in their children's lives until the parents die. You will have 35-year-old people who will refuse to date someone because their parents disapprove of them and their parent and their parents will frequently disapprove of people that their their adult child is dating and make it very well known and make a huge drama out of it and uh any of my korean friends out there or listeners out there can attest to this it's a generalization of course and it's not with every uh, korean parent but but korean parents um and and many chinese parents are like this. Japanese parents can be like this too, but in my experience, a lesser extent than, than Korean parents, anecdotally. And um, so what we would look at that, we'd be like, oh man, there's something wrong with those parents. Like, why are they so you know, enmeshed and overly involved in their kids' lives? Well, it's just a value difference. It's not good or bad. They would look at us and say like, don't those parents care about their kids' marriage? Don't, they, don't the parents care about making sure that their kids marry the right person so that the kids can be happy? I mean, do the parents just not even care? So all this is to say that around the world, things are a lot different than the United States. And in the United States, we value independence tremendously. We value the ability to do things on your own. And this begins from day zero of a, of a child's life. We, we tend to parent even infants who are three months, six months old, as if they were more independent than the way parents will parent three months old children in other cultures, particularly as they get older, right? You have a a three-year-old child and that three-year-old child wants to uh, play by themselves in their own room or something. And in the United States, you're you're just more likely to find a parent to think that's acceptable as opposed to in, in other cultures. So uh, that was kind of a tangent, but I hope you get what I'm saying. So it, it looked as, as looked as though around the world, the United States was actually the, and Western children were actually the weird ones in that we had this anomalous attachment style that was avoidant, which is not very common around the world. We, we actually don't, there hasn't, hasn't been a ton of research in this, so it's hard to tell. Um, Kondo Ikamura et al. in 2018, so just last year, they looked at this question again. They're like, okay, let's really look at this. And they looked at it in Japan, and they actually altered the, the Ainsworth strain situation procedure to address the criticism of the past research. You know, they're like, okay, well, let's, let's try to address any of the confounding variables. Let's try to really try to change the procedure so that we might be able to capture these avoidant kids that are just not being detected by the strain situation procedure. But again, they found that the most children who were insecure were actually preoccupied, which is consistent with other research like uh, Mayake et al. and, and again, Takahashi. 
So it seems clear that Japanese people and people in other societies, South Korea, Mali, Israel, they parent really much differently than American parents. And so that's just something to think about when we think about attachment style and parenting. We, we have to think about the culture that people are from and, and the context that they're in. Um, and just to put a fine point on it, although this, is, this might be a little repetitive, it, as a clinician, when you are observing a family and you're trying to help them with their parenting, you have to think about how that family interprets things. So some people will be like, well, they're in the United States now, so they have to do things like Americans do. And it's like, well, to some extent that's true because a big part of it is how the kid interprets things. So I, I would work a lot. I would work with a lot of – because as, as someone who was considered and is Asian-American as a therapist, as a family therapist, I would get a fair amount of immigrant families from Asia – and although I didn't know really anything more than the white guy next to me about it, uh, because I was half Asian, it automatically gave me this sort of street cred. And, and so I, I had a lot of immigrant Asian families. And over time, I, be, I, I, be, I started to figure out some of the realities of, of what a family therapist should do with some of these families. Um, because the kids say they're 50, you have a 15-year-old boy. He came over when he was five. He speaks fluent English. The parents barely speak English, if at all. The kid is doing okay in school. The parents really have no idea what's happening at school because they can't even really read the report cards. The parents are completely isolated from society. They probably work at a job where they don't even really talk to English speakers. The kid is in the community, has white friends, blah, blah, blah. And the, so the kid lives in these two completely different worlds. The kid lives at home, basically in Asia, because the parents have recreated their uh, their nation of origin in their home with different um, TV shows that are from that region. The, the language, the food, the furniture, everything is is of that region. They step out the door of their house, and instantly they're in the United States. It's like there's this customs border between their house and the rest of the world. And so on some level, the parents would actually have to start parenting like an American because their kid is American and their kid is observing things. Like in other, just as an example, and I don't know if this is true, but let's say in China, kids are not given cell phones until they're 18 and that's just normal. Actually, I'm guessing that's not even true, but let's just say that it is. United States kids commonly get cell phones much earlier. And so as the parents are refusing to get their kids a cell phone, they might actually bump into a, a bigger problem because the kid is going out into the world and realizing that every other friend that they have has a cell phone. Whereas if they raised their kid in their context where very few kids had cell phones, then they would have a much easier time with that. They would have a much easier time convincing their kid and their kid would interpret it differently. If you grow up, so another example, that I do know is that in South Korea, there's much more corporal punishment. And so when you come to school and you are like, yeah, I came home late last night and my, my father whipped me with his belt. Um, and boy, did it hurt. Well, the other kids at school are going to be like, yeah, same, same to me, or but that happened to me last week. And that has a, 
although it could be absolutely physically abusive and harmful and traumatic, it tends to be less traumatic for the individual because they're looking around and they're like, well, this is just how things are and I'm not alone and that's how parents do things and all, all good parents care in that way. Whereas the United States, particularly in Seattle, it's, it's really abnormal or considered abnormal. And the kid goes to school and says, yeah, yeah, I stayed up late last night. I stayed out late. My, parent, my dad beat me with the belt. If you said that at lunchtime, I'm guessing most of the kids would, would be aghast and be like, oh, my God, you need to call CPS. And this is terrible, particularly if you told adults, right? And then now the kid's like, whoa, geez, um, something's wrong here. Does my dad love me? Um, now I, ha- I have power, which is a whole other thing that I would work with with these immigrant families. Is the, kid, the kid would often have more power overall than the parents did. The kid could communicate with the school, police, um, that sort of thing. And if the CPS arrived, the kid was much better able to communicate with CPS people. And so there, there's this um, – so parents – so if you're a clinician, you're working with people that aren't from your culture and you have a hard time understanding what, what's going on, it's just, it's just something you think about is how the parents can retain what they like about their parenting uh, while at the same time making some adjustments to the expectations that the kid is sort of absorbed from the community that they're in. Uh, there's a lot I could talk about there. Um, obviously, the bias of the therapist is, is present. Um, uh, one more thing I'll say is that uh, I've talked about this in podcasts before. Um, a lot of therapists are white women, particularly family therapists, and thus be are much more likely, if not near universality on this, particularly in Seattle, to abhor corporal punishment, to believe that spanking your child is morally wrong, damaging universally and abusive. Whereas I work with African-American parents and African-American therapists, family therapists, and they will have a much different point of view. Not always, of course, but often. I was just talking with an African-American family therapist the other day, and we were complaining about this because she feels like she can't really come out of the closet and say, well, in my community, uh, spanking or whooping your kids is, is normal. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually a loving act that you do to discipline your kids because you care. And you're, if your kid comes home late, you're worried. So you whoop them and you tell them, no, you can't do that anymore. And depending on your culture, you, you will feel very differently viscerally about what I just said. If you come from uh, the general mainstream white particularly women culture in Seattle, and you hear that story, you're like, no, 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 that's wrong. You can't whoop your kid. That's wrong. That's abusive. It's wrong. Well, I'm here to tell you that the act of whooping or using corporal punishment, it varies widely around the world. And when they look, research, when they look at it, they find that the same behavior in two different cultures can actually produce different effects on average for kids, which is weird, right? You would think, well, isn't, aren't, isn't beating your kid bad in every culture? And of course, beyond a certain threshold, it's always bad. It doesn't matter what the, what culture you're in. But the the range of healthy parenting behaviors is actually quite uh, large. Now, this isn't to say that if you grow up in a non-corporal punishment 
parenting um, world that suddenly you can just start using corporal punishment and everything will be fine. Because it, again, it has to do with the way you do it. It has to do with the way your kid interprets it. It has to do with the way your family interprets it. And all that is culturally based. So this is all to say that if you're a clinician and you're, ta- and you're working with attachment, particularly with families, particularly when you're talking about parenting, you just have to come, especially if you're from mainstream white American culture, you really have to check your privilege and you really have to stop assuming things. And I've, I've been in arguments with people about this because the, the notion to, to tell a mainstream American white woman from Seattle that corporal punishment is okay, um, they decided a long time ago that it was not okay. And to them, it's a social justice issue, which it is. To, in, a, in a way, it is, because a lot of kids are being beat and mistreated, and these kids need an advocate. They need someone like us to stand up for those kids and to help them get out of situations like that. And we don't want to be part of the system that oppresses them and keeps them down and keeps them abused. We want to be a part of the liberation. So that is true. And both and, it's also true that sometimes corporal punishment can look quite severe, but actually be very loving and positive parenting practice. It just depends. And uh, when you are in a bubble of culture, it's tempting to believe that all your assumptions and behaviors are the right way, and anything that is different is the wrong way. Uh, so let's all just make sure we think about that as we think about attachment. Now, when it comes to adults, it applies similarly, but less so, because with adults, you're not talking about... Well, let me think about this for a second. With adults, it applies, I guess, in a different way, in that uh, people in romantic relationships will express love in different ways. So some people, the love languages kind of thing, right? Some people, given their culture, will show love for their spouse by being a really, really good, dependable parent instead of being a verbal person, like a person who says, I love you, or instead of being a sensual person, someone who cuddles and holds hands and that kind of thing. And that's the way they're raised, and that's the way they like to receive love. That's the way they like to give love. And so all that needs to be taken into consideration, too. I'm not, I'm, you know, culture, I'm sure, has something to do with that. But really, as clinicians and, and as individuals who aren't clinicians, just make sure you think about that and think about how people prefer to express love, how they prefer to receive love. Some people love to give to give gifts. There was a time in my life when I spent a lot of time on Christmas gifts, and it was my way of loving my family. I would um, start sh- Christmas shopping in September, and this is back before the internet, so I actually would have to go to the mall or go to different you know shopping situations, and walk and just walk the mall and, and think, you know, and I would bring a notepad and I would say, okay, well, for, for my brother, Mark, this, these three things look, you know, and I'd budget it out because this is back when I had barely two pennies to rub together. And I just love that phrase, 
pennies to rub together. Is is that the phrase? <laughs> and I wanted people to feel the love that I was trying to communicate through that action because I wanted them to see how much I cared and I wanted to put all that effort into it. Um, I guess so. when I think about it, I acquired that from my parents, particularly my mom. Uh, they were extremely good gift givers when we were kids. The four of us kids got... Uh, we I always felt bad at the Christmas evening and or the next time at school, and I'd be talking with my cousins or friends about what I got for Christmas because we would describe what we got, and <laughs> I would always feel bad because it was clear that my parents gave me much, much more cool things than my what my friends and other extended family members got. <laughs> um, and my parents weren't rich. They, they just... Um, were just very caring and loving towards us kids and wanted us to feel great. And they wanted us to know how much they loved us. And one of the ways they did it was through these, through this gift giving. And I received it as such too. So that's the important thing is as a kid, the whole process of Christmas, the whole process of gift exchanging, we had a whole uh, ceremony where, you know, so the four kids come down and each of us had a corner in the living room, each kid and Santa's, uh, quote-unquote presents would be sort of heaped. There'd be this huge pile of presents uh, for each kid, and each of us four kids would open a present um, at a time. And since there were so many presents, it could take literally six hours to open all of our presents. <laughs> and this is before we uh, played with anything or before we had um, lunch or anything. And it was, so it was this whole thing. And I, I have evidence of this because my dad would videotape this whole thing. Cause he was one of the first people to have a home video camera, uh, one of, you know, in the eighties, early eighties. And so I acquired that. And, and later in life, I, I would do that too for, for other people. But then eventually I just thought, man, you know, this whole gift giving thing, it's just such a hassle. And it's and I have I, I'm having a really hard time figuring out because as you get older, you just sort of figure your siblings have everything they want because they have enough money to buy the things they they want, and you're a little less aware of your siblings and you don't really know what they what their interests are as well as you did when you were younger, and so there was this really weird transition where I went through with my family, and I actually proposed to everyone that we stop giving gifts to each other because it was becoming this sort of runaway process of everyone spending more and more money on things and being annoyed with the whole process. You know, it was just so time consuming. And a lot of times people would give me gifts and I'd be like, ah, I didn't really want this, but I, I guess I get why you got me this. Or I would be like, well, I want this thing, but I, I can't buy it yet because I should probably save that for a Christmas gift so that someone could buy it for me. And it was, it became this very sort of Excel spreadsheet situation. And I proposed to everyone that we stop and that we only give gifts to the little ones, to, to kids, and we stop giving gifts between ourselves. And this was a shift in the way that our family culture showed love for each other. And um, we had other ways that we showed love for, you know, we hug and kiss and um, laugh and hang out and eat together. There's all these other ways that we love each other. Um, so anyway, this is all to say that, uh, uh, so to put a fine point on why I told that whole story, it was 
that when I actually proposed that we stop giving gifts, I actually had to spend a lot of time soothing everyone, uh, particularly some individuals in my family, that I was proposing this not because I didn't love them, but because I just felt like we were transitioning as a family and that we could still love each other without doing this procedure anymore. And it didn't really apply uh, because some people were resistant to that change because they wanted this method of loving each other. They, they, they interpreted the lack of this ability to give gifts as essentially cutting off the communication of love and appreciation between different people. And it took some time. It probably took 15 years to make that transition in my family. It took a long time. Because like for the first couple of years, we, or actually for a long time, we drew names and we were like, okay, I have, I have my sister. And so I only have to think about my sister this year. But then that became kind of an arms race too, because it was like, who can spend the most money? Because in Jap- Japanese culture, it's all about like how you can be the most self-sacrificial <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um how you can be the best giver kind of a thing. Anyway, uh, so we went through a phase like that, but then eventually we just stopped altogether. We just, but there were a lot of people who would break the rules, you know, they would be like, um, I don't care. I'm getting gifts for everybody. <laughs> anyway, so it's important as clinicians and as individuals. So a, another uh, realm of this in terms of attachment and culture is, when you are trying to love, so does this look at a spousal relationship and your spouse grew up in a way that loved you? Well, actually, let me give you a clinical example. I was working with a couple who the wife grew up in a family in which love was expressed by being really involved in each other's lives and by talking a lot. So she grew up in a family where the parents and the siblings, they really invaded each other's lives and were kind of nosy and involved and had a lot of opinions and would fight a lot verbally in a light way. So they're very active in each other's lives. And the husband grew up in a family where it was the opposite, where they were quite distant and did not were not very involved. They didn't argue. They didn't raise their voice. They tried to be as calm as possible. And so husband and wife come together and they would have these fights, and it would threaten their attachment uh, feelings towards each other. They would be attachment injured. So when the wife was very invasive and very argumentative with the husband, the husband was really hurt by that. It felt like an attachment injury. It felt like a rejection of his thoughts. It felt like a bulldozer for him, and it felt hurtful, hurt his feelings. And he was very slow to respond. His family... They thought a lot before they opened their mouth. Her family, they didn't think at all before they opened their mouth. Both were wonderful people and wonderful families, but um, they didn't really mesh well. And so, uh, and vice versa, when the husband wouldn't respond for a long time, the wife interpreted that as a rejection, as a, as a withholding, as a passive-aggressive silent treatment, and the wife would be hurt, and there would be an attachment disruption there between the two of them. And the problem was is that they both came from different they were the same ethnicity ish you know you know white americans um but their uh, whatever region they were from or whatever kind of parent or uh, family style that they were from was really really different so as clinicians 
we have to detect that in people and understand that. Because if, if he came into therapy and he was like, oh, my wife, you know, she's always arguing and she's always invading me, it's tempting to be, be like, man, what's wrong with that woman? Uh, instead of being, being like, oh, I wonder what culture she's from. I wonder what uh, culture of family she uh, was raised in. Let's look at that. I wonder what culture of attachment she's from. Uh, the other thing that you're going to run into is if you're a marital therapist and you have, so let's say you come from a culture where you are more quiet and more reserved and more of a thinker than a talker. And you sit down with this couple where you're going to side with the husband. You're going to look at the wife and be like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you so invasive? Why are you so argumentative? And vice versa. If you're more like you're from the wife's culture, then you're going to be against the husband. You're going to be like, man, speak up. You know, you got to talk faster <laughs> or whatever, you know, being a little uh, crass. But I hope you get my point that culture and context and region need to be very closely looked at when we're on the ground doing this kind of thing. Um, another uh, point along these lines is, let's say you're trying to... Um, I, I talk with a lot of people who feel like they didn't get the sort of love and attention they wanted to from their parents. And sometimes it's helpful to consider the culture that your parents came from, the way in which they were taught to love children, and to look for signs of that and interpret it accurately as overt messages of love. So take, for example, you have a very gruff father who was raised in a culture in the 50s and 60s where men did not talk about their feelings, and the way that men expressed their love was by being always there, by being a breadwinner, by being um, non-burdensome, by talking about sports, uh, and he, but you're not like that. And so he's been trying to love you through these ways that he knows how to love, and all the while you've been interpreting his behavior as, as being extremely, quote-unquote, unloving. But that is because there's been a, a misunderstanding of what love communication is. And each of you, even though you grew up in the same, quote-unquote, culture and you're from the same family, you might actually have absorbed different cultural messages about what is acceptable love language. Um, and uh, this isn't to say that you can't go to your dad and say, I would really love it if you just said, I love, I love you more often. Or I'd really love it if you, if you just sat down and actually just had a really face-to-face talk. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know how well that's going to go over. But there's nothing wrong with altering. But it can be extremely healing to realize that one's parents have been trying to love you for decades, and you just haven't been hearing it right. It's, it's sort of like if they only spoke sign language or something, and you, you didn't speak sign language, and they've been yelling at you that they love you the whole time, and you just haven't been hearing it. And you're just like, why do they keep waving their hands in front of my fucking face? It's really annoying. Why don't they just say something? And it's like, well, they use sign language to communicate, and you use verbal language to communicate. And you have to at least try, you have to get, try to get to know their, their communication style. Because in my experience, unless the parent is some sort of monster like Charlie Manson or something, parents really, really want to love their kids and want their kids to know that they love them. It is a deep, any of you parents out there understand this, you know, uh, your kid can be 45 years old and 
you just want your child to know that you love them and admire them and are proud of them. You just, you just, it's in your bones. And when children feel as though their parents don't love them, it is often, there's often some kind of breakdown of communication there. Now, you can have very defended parents who can be dicks or reactive parents who can be dicks or something, but but beneath that reactivity is usually a, a deep love. Anyway. All right, so I've talked about gender a little bit, but let's talk about it a little bit more. So when we look at gender, uh, and I'm just going to talk about cisgender men and cisgender women, uh, cisgender men are much more likely to be avoidant than um, women, and women are much more likely to be preoccupied. These are... Uh, bell curves, remember? So you can have plenty of preoccupied men. I've worked with a lot of preoccupied men, and you can certainly have avoidant women. But this is similar to uh, um, narcissism versus borderline. You know, uh, the bell curves are much more likely uh, skewed towards uh, narcissism when it comes to men and much more skewed towards borderline when it comes to women. Uh, but it depends on the researcher and everything. You know, I've I've, ta- I've talked about this in the narcissistic personality disorder deep dive, in which um, uh, it seems like two thirds of people with borderline are women, and one third are men, and two thirds of narcissistic people are men, and one third are women. But when you actually try to eliminate bias by gender, the numbers become much more similar. In other words, when you, when clinicians are diagnosing people, and let's say they have a, a presentation that is sort of borderline and sort of narcissistic, if the patient is male, they're much more likely to be categorized as narcissistic, and if the patient is female, they're much more likely to be categorized as borderline, um, even though they're kind of in the gray zone, because we just have bias about labels and and gender. So is avoidant preoccupied the same way? Maybe. It's hard to know. Um, and I've said this before, but I guess it bears repeating in this little section here, is that um, it seems that men are more likely to be avoidant, women are more likely to be preoccupied because of socialization. I mean, even before children are born, parents treat their children differently by gender. When there are gender reveal studies, we instantly start to react differently even to, to just the idea of that child. There's been countless studies um, even for parents who are really woke to gender issues, they will still treat their children differently under observation. It's just something we just can't avoid. Boys are given a longer leash. Girls are encouraged to be more aware of their feelings and more aware of other people. Boys are seen as weak if they cry or ask for help. Girls are seen as bossy if they assert themselves, and etc. So when there's mistreatment, uh, the child has a choice between avoidant and preoccupied in general. And since boys are socialized to be more self-reliant, they're more likely to choose the avoidant strategies. And since girls are socialized to be more relationally minded, they're more likely to choose the preoccupied strategies. So, you know, genders is another important thing to think about. The thing that I like to do, honestly, I guess when I think about it, when I'm working with actual human beings with attachment, is really try to break down their attachment injuries and reactivity to discrete behaviors without thinking about their gender or their presentation. Because when I do that, I often can very quickly determine a conceptualization of their attachment style and attachment reactivity uh, 
because if I just if I just look at them and think about them as a whole, I'll allow gender to affect it, if that makes any sense. So I, I find it easier to sort of break it down. Okay, what did I observe in this person? Let's don't think about gender. What do I observe? And it's much easier for me to say, okay, and and now let's consider gender. <laughs> um, then I find it easier to figure out. Okay. So let's look at a lot of other issues. We talked about culture. We talked about gender. Let's talk about texting. So apparently research has found that we view our cell phones as an attachment figure of sorts. We are attached to our phone in the same way that we might be attached to a human being. There have been studies showing that many people exhibit the same attachment behaviors when separated from their phones, like separation anxiety, seeking behaviors, and despair. This is a study by Holt et al., 2018. So I see this in two ways. I mean, the common way that this is reported is people are fucked up today or kids these days and they're dumb selfies. And certainly I guess that's possible, but I tend to not be attracted to simplistic, ageist explanations as that. To me, uh, I can see this in two rational ways. One is, is that when we lack security with real people, we will use whatever we can get to attach to like blankets or stuffed animals, and maybe even cell phones. And when we feel like we can't trust other people, when we feel like we can't get attachment security and safety and soothing from human beings, then then we'll turn to objects. And cell phones can be one of those objects because it can, it's a thing of entertainment. It always does what you want it to do. It's predictable, and it never leaves your side. So, you know, it kind of makes some sense. Uh, that's a very different perspective than kids these days, right? The other, uh, and the cure to that one is, of course, to give people attachment security so they don't need a cell phone to, to be a, a sublimation. Um, the second thing that I th- see, which is, I think is, uh, also is, is actually pretty common, is that the reason why we're attached to our cell phones uh, in a healthy way is because our ta- our cell phones are a window to our attachment figures. People often will make fun of Facebook. You know, they'll be like, "Oh, Facebook, it's so dumb. It's just a bunch of it's it's the suburban, it's you know, it's, it's suburbia on the internet, or I don't know what they say, <laughs> or it's all about stupid manipulative uh, Zuckerberg and Trump and stuff." And okay, that's all true, but. For me, Facebook is my window to my family. My mother is on Facebook a lot, I, th- I think every day from what I can tell, as, as am I. And I'll post something or I'll see that she commented on something or one of, you know she will post a picture of herself doing something fun and I'll comment on it. This is much easier than if she had to email all of us what she's up to that day or text all of us and say, hey, this is what I'm doing right now. Care to comment? <laughs> um, it's much easier for me to just watch what everyone's doing on Facebook and then be like, oh, like a friend of mine, uh, my drummer from Bread Knife Incident, he lives in Mexico now in Monterey, and he just posted this video of himself last night watching this band play a Devo song, and it looked like all the dudes were in drag. And that was fun. I was like, oh, he went to a show and... He liked this um, this drag band playing Devo. That's that's fun. And if I didn't have Facebook, I wouldn't have access to my friend in Mexico. And 
uh, or you would have to specifically send the video to me, which would be weird, right? So anyway, for many people, they are uh, they have attachment behaviors with their phone because their phone is their way of connecting with their family members. In the same way that if in you know in a very extreme way, let's say that when you lost the ability to to hear, like you became deaf or you lacked hearing or something, you would be in uh, despair for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was because you wouldn't be able to hear the voice of your loved ones anymore. So uh, being separated from your cell phone can can be that. And I find that that is not part of the conversation. When people hack on cell phones, or oh, everyone's addicted to their cell phones. Facebook is so dumb. And, and it's just like, well, um, this is how people communicate now. This is how we... It was. It's the same as when the telephone was invented way back when. Everyone was hacking on this. Yeah. You know, so why not just have a real conversation? Why do you have to talk on the phone? You know, just everyone's so distant now. And it's like, well, today no one would make fun of people talking on the phone because that's something that's considered to be traditional and old, and so therefore it's good. Anyway. Um. So here's another thing that I want to get into is, um, in gender, getting back to gender, is can men be just as loving to infants as mothers? Now, of course, the answer is pretty obvious, but it's not obvious to a lot of people. A lot of people will assume like, well, um, you, when, you know, an infant is born to a mother and that mother is just better at taking care of the, taking care of that young infant. Um, now, a lot of people, now you're going you're gonna to see less agreement of, you know, for parents as the kid gets older. Say an eight-year-old boy, a lot of people don't necessarily think that the mother is um, somehow better to, to parent the child than the father. But when it comes to young infants, one-month-old, six-month-old infants, a lot of people will say that um, the mother is the better choice. And the mother is the, you know, for breastfeeding reasons and maternal reasons and biological reasons. So, uh, but whenever it comes to these kinds of claims, we've got to look at the data, right? Well, studies actually show that men, cisgender men, can be uh, just as good as mothers, even for very young infants. For example, one of the experiments that we're doing in our society is we have a lot of gay couples who are adopting children, gay men adopting children. And so Fugay et al. 2018, last year, a study looked at gay men as parents, and they found that the children, so these are these are children who were adopted at birth. And I mean, adopted is a funny word, because sometimes one of the guys is the father, biological. So it's not really adoption. But um, anyway, the point is, is that you have two men raising a infant from birth, and there isn't a female around. And the, uh, they measured the attachment uh, uh, security in a wide swath of these infants that were raised by gay parents. And they found that the, that the parents were just as attachment-sensitive to the children as females were. So we need to stop referring to everything being between mother and child. I've, I've been guilty of this already in, in this deep dive. Um, but I just want to set the record straight that research shows that, of course, um, uh, men 
can be just as good and just as attuned and just as healthy of parents as, um, as a female can. I, I mean, so just think like the only made, the only difference really between cisgender men, cisgender women about parenting is that women have breasts and women can breastfeed. And although breastfeeding is a very bonding experience, when you do bottle feeding right, the child is not negatively affected. The child can be, uh, can be just as, can, the child can bond just as well. Um, breastfeeding adds a, a, a sort of, it facilitates that, but, but there's, there's, so if, if you have a woman and for whatever reason she can't breastfeed, it's not like that child is doomed, right? So in the same way that, um, gay parents raising an infant, that child is not doomed at all. Let's just set that record straight. Okay. So let's talk about materialism as a cultural phenomenon. So Let's define materialism. It's, it can be defined as a value related to the importance of acquiring possessions or having an appealing image by buying things or appearing wealthy. So it's really two different things, materialism. It's acquiring possessions or trying to uh, project an image of someone who has a lot of things by buying things. So it's either acquisition or, or, uh, main, or the maintenance of your image. And materialism has been studied quite a bit by our industry and has uh, been associated with a lot of bad outcomes like mental health problems, lower well-being, lower quality of marriage, anti-social behaviors, and anti-environmental behaviors. So a lot of bad outcomes have been associated with an increase in materialism among individuals. I'm not saying that we're – well, anyway, the more materialist the person is – the more likely they are to have these bad outcomes. It's also materialism is also associated with a lot of particular past experiences like cold parenting styles. When, when you have cold parents, you're more likely to be materialist economic stress, which makes sense. Uncertainty as a child, which makes sense because again, or not again for the first time, (laughs) sometimes I say again without having said it the first time. It's like, I'm sort of responding in my head to myself, I'm like, again, you, you're thinking this again when you haven't said it yet. <laughs> anyway, uh, for the first time, economic stress, uncertainty as a child will, can lead to materialism because you associate, you feel the pain of being without. You feel the pain of not being able to afford things. And you can become a little obsessed with retaining things and also with um, – and – as a child, if you were marginalized because you were poor, and then when you get older, you have the ability to appear wealthy, you can sometimes um, really go for it. Um, we don't have to look too far in our culture to find evidence of that. Um, physical pain as a child is associated with materialism. Mort- mortality, uh, salience, meaning that you are aware of your own death as a child can be associated with materialism. Interpersonal and social threats as children, uh, social rejection and interpersonal threats and anxious attachment, meaning preoccupied attachment, is also associated with um, materialism. So essentially, when someone feels insecure as a child and they're not being treated great, they look for any way to cope. And for some children, material items and or wealthy status might be a way of coping. 
they might think like, well, if I, if I only had things, then I would feel better. Or if I was only wealthy, then people wouldn't leave me or something. There's this equation that people make. Of course, it, it's illogical. It's a distortion. But it makes sense that children would develop this idea because we teach children that possessions and wealth are concrete ways of gaining security in life. We've talked about this with Umberto. He, he's talked about this before. He was neglected by his mother, and she sent him a lot of material items. He was in Colombia. She was in the United States. And she would send him a lot of toys and things. And he saw this as a child as evidence that she loved him and was really happy to see these bags of toys arrive. It's like, oh, my mom loves me, because he really was wanting love from her. And then as he grew up, he was extremely materialistic, and it became a compulsive situation for him. And I've seen this many times. Uh, many times When I have worked with neglected children, they will often obsess about getting money and things from other parents. Um, and they, they're extremely upset when they don't get what they want. And a lot of sibling rivalries will happen. You know, I'd be talking with this family and these kids, and it was pretty um, clear that the kids had been through a lot and the family had been through a lot for various reasons. And half the time or more, all the kid wanted to talk about was the fact that his sister got a new pair of shoes and he didn't. And I'd just be like, okay, well let's talk about other things. And he's like, no, it's bullshit. And my, my, and it was, there was like this obsession among the kids about how much money the parents were spending on them. And at the first, I just thought it's like, why are these kids just so in there's, I mean, I get why you would want new pair of shoes, but why are you dying on that cross? And over time I would see it repeatedly. And I realized, Oh, this is just a coping mechanism for these people that they equate material. They, they're not getting the love and attention that they want. And so they're like, well, next best thing, I, I'm going to try to get material items. I'm not going to get love and attention, but because those things are amorphous and I'm, I've given up on that. But I have noticed that sometimes my parents buy me things. So maybe I can get that because that's at least a shred of evidence that my parents really love me. It's really sad. So when you see materialism in others or even in yourself, the key is, is to look at your attachment security because when you improve your attachment security, uh, research by Sun et al. 2018 has shown that it can reduce materialism. Um, also, you can increase your self-esteem. You can remember positive events in the past and you can have successful relational experiences with other people these things also tend to reduce materialism. There's nothing wrong with liking things. There's nothing wrong technically with being wealthy. Uh, but there is something unhealthy and unfair to you if you are focusing on material items at the expense or as a defense against your attachment insecurities. So um, if you find yourself being particularly materialistic or you know someone who's particularly materialistic, interpret it as a very high likelihood that the reason why they're doing that is because they're, they feel quite alone and they've never really felt quite attachment secure. Okay, I just want to make a small point about the military. Military folks are often deployed, which means that they're sent overseas or sent on assignment somewhere far away, and they have to leave their families behind often. 
And there's been a fair amount of research looking into that and how attachment style plays a role in both the military person and the families and their ability to adjust. Obviously, the more secure the individuals are, the greater the ability to adjust and other outcomes are better. And so the military could do good by trying to help people in this way and might even be able to prevent things like suicide or other kinds of issues if they understand the attachment style of everyone involved and can maybe have a appropriate response given that attachment style. For example, if you found that a soldier was uh, preoccupied attachment, then maybe making sure that they're on assignment where they can actually communicate with their family more often and, and keeping them away from assignments where they can't communicate at all. Um, just those kinds of things. You know, I think it's a tall order to ask the military to pay attention to such a thing, but sometimes they do. So that's just that. Let's talk about bigotry, racism, sexism, otherism. So bigotry, if we were to define it, is basically having negative evaluations of outgroups. So we all are a part of in-groups, and by definition, that creates outgroups. I am a cisgender man, so that is my in-group, and everyone who is not in that in-group is an outgroup. I am from Seattle, and if you are from Portland, Oregon, or Vancouver, British Columbia, you are the enemy. <laughs> you are the outgroup. Um, and when they look at empirical research, we find that insecure attachment is associated with bigotry. It's also associated with aggressive behaviors, discrimination, and specifically homophobia. So when someone has insecure attachment, avoidant, preoccupied, disorganized, they're more likely to be bigoted. I find this to be revolutionary and something that I think really shows why the world is the way that it is and why Twitter is the way that it is. Um, yeah, so let's just bask in that one for a second. When people are mistreated, they're more likely to adopt bigoted attitudes, regardless of what that is, whether it be bigoted against Republicans or bigoted against Democrats. It doesn't matter. Whatever in-group you're a part of, you're more likely to um, hold strong to it and, and also be hostile towards the outgroup, regardless of what in-group you're in. And I found this to be extremely uh, anecdotally uh, correlated. So there's a lot of theory as to why this is. You have social identity theory, you have social categorization theory, um, and you have uh, working model theories with, you know, in, in Bowlby's theory. But without going into all that silliness, let's just talk about me. <laughs> um, part of my identity is wrapped up in the fact that I went to the University of Washington or UW, and I am a Husky fan, UW Huskies. I've always been a Husky fan. Uh, I grew up in Seattle, and, and UW is the major university in the area. And so by definition, if you grew up in the Seattle area, you're at least somewhat of a Husky fan, maybe. I don't know. But also, uh, my sister went to UW. I went to UW. Many people in my f family went to UW, my cousin, others. Um, my brother-in-law played on the Husky football team. 
I actually tried out for the Husky football team when I was in when I was a senior in high school. When I see the Husky logo, I get a warm feeling. Um, I watch every game, every Husky game with my friends uh, who I went to college with at UW. And this is this is a definite in group. I'm definitely in the Husky University of Washington in group. But by definition, that cre- that creates an out group, particularly Wazoo fans. So our rival at the University of Washington in Seattle is Washington State University, which is on the other side of the state in uh, Pullman, Washington. <laughs> I couldn't remember the town. It's such a small town. Um, so uh, UW and Wazoo are rivals. And half of my friends, uh, well, I would say a third of my friends, the third of the people I went to high school with that went to one of these two schools went to UW. And, but a lot of my friends from high school actually went to Wazoo. Um, I also have a lot of family members who went to Wazoo, including my mom and my brother, who both went to University uh, or Washington State University. So there's the in-group and there's the out-group. When I am with a UW fan, I feel automatically accepted, particularly if we're watching a game. Sometimes I'll watch a game at a sports bar, and in Seattle, you're particularly at some sports bars that are designated for UW fans, you're going to find that there's just a lot of people wearing purple. And we all have an instant bond. Um, whereas uh, one time I was at a sports bar this last fall, and I suggested to my friends that we all meet up at a sports bar near my house. And I didn't do my research at first. And what I found was that it was actually predominantly a Wazoo bar. And I, uh, the three of us, me and my two other friends from college, we, f- we felt threatened <laughs> by it, even though it wasn't the Apple Cup. It wasn't the uh, UW and Wazoo weren't playing. Uh, there were multiple screens. And so the Wazoo fans were watching their game and we were watching our game. But it was um, threatening, felt, felt threatening, even though, of course, that's silly. But, you know, you just, if you're a fan of a sports club, I think you might understand what I'm talking about. So all of this concerns, um, all of these concerns and all these thoughts and all these interpretations, they activate my attachment system. When I'm around UW people, I feel safe. I feel like I can reach out to them. I can high-five strangers when we get a touchdown. Whereas when I'm around Wazoo fans, these are threats. These are enemies. These are essentially, you know, I'm treating UW fans like they're of my tribe, a hundred thousand years ago, and I'm treating Wazoo fans like they are a puma about to eat my head, you know? So if I was insecurely attached, then um, this would become a problem, right? If I'm avoidant, then these other people are dangerous. I'm like, ooh, you know, those those people are dangerous. If I'm preoccupied, I'm really um, concentrating on what they're doing because if you're preoccupied, you tend to really pay attention to dangerous things because you're trying to trying to figure it out, trying to manipulate it. And um, uh, so, uh, and that's just a mild in-group, out-group thing, right? That's just UW-Wazoo. Imagine Republican-Democrat. Imagine rural versus city. Imagine white versus black. Imagine um, uh, native-born American versus immigrant it becomes much more intense because the rhetoric and ideas about these groups are much more uh, discriminatory and, and pervasive. 
And the rhetoric can be quite convincing that they're afraid. You know, when Donald Trump talks about the caravan, he paints it as though there is this um, crowd of thousands of people who are um, uh, just going to pour over the border like zombies in, um, what's that movie with Brad Pitt, Planet Z or whatever that movie was? And they're just going to pour over the border and they're just going to run rampant on a, on a wild criminal spree if they get into the United States and we'll never be able to stop them and it'll cause our entire country to go down and our children will be raped and our jobs will be taken and all this stuff. I mean, I'm exaggerating, of course, but it, he gives off that vibe. You know, the vibe is it's like a caravan is coming and we're, unless we put up a wall, we're all doomed. And so these are um, the, anyway, so in group, out group, right? So if someone experiences mistreatment when they're growing up, which led to them developing an insecure attachment in general, and they find a shred of security within their in-group, then they're going to look at the out-group with even more suspicion and more worry because they're looking to their in-group as a way of trying to help them feel secure. Um, Now, what they're not going to say is, I feel afraid of the caravan. What they're going to say is that they are angry at the caravan or they're trying to be, you know, nationalistic or something about the caravan. So um, what we need to do is we need to help people to understand their attachment insecurity. We need to help them to soothe their attachment insecurity. We need to prevent attachment insecurity in various communities so that people will be less likely to adhere to bigoted ideas. And again, I find this to be revolutionary, that um, instead of trying to convince bigoted people that they're bigoted, we need to try to help them to feel safe. Imagine if um, we as a society, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, actually just tried to soothe the other side to try to make them feel more safe, instead of doing what we do, which is actually to make them feel even more unsafe. I've talked about this before, but maybe not in this way, that when, um, so I'll just speak from my cultural pocket as a uh, lefty, when we ridicule Republicans and um, make fun of them or call them stupid and racist and and otherize them uh that's that makes them f- that hurts their feelings so imagine i've talked about this before in similar ways but you know imagine you're in a couple's therapy session and the couple comes in and the husband sits down and he's just like my wife doesn't care about people she doesn't she doesn't know how to listen well and she doesn't have a heart well, she's going to be hurt by that, right? And if she if she doesn't know what's happening from an attachment perspective, then she's going to get she's going to feel her anger. She's not going to know underneath that anger is hurt, and she's going to act on that anger. And she's going to be like, "Well, you are a pussy. That's the problem. You're too sensitive." And then the husband's going to be hurt by that because he doesn't understand his attachment insecurities. So uh, zoom out to the society, and we have a situation where. Uh, a whole group of people it, are calling the the left is calling the right a bunch of racist pigs who don't care about other people, and they are hurt by that, and they feel attachment insecurity because they're looking at half the country and they're like half of the country is a threat to me, 
because they hate me. Forget about what they're saying about me. I know through experience that half of the country is hostile towards me and my people. And, but I, I, because I was taught not to be um, weak, so to speak, and recognize that my feelings are hurt, I am going to only identify that I'm angry. And then I'm going to get righteous, and I'm going to speak out, and I'm going to attack. And I will call them snowflakes, or cucks, or whatever they call people like me, which I get all the time. <laughs> and then our feelings are hurt, and we can't, and our feelings are, and again, our attachment and security is threatened because we're looking at half the country and we're like, they, these people are dangerous. They're hostile. They uh, adhere to a point of view that is going to hurt me and the people I love. And I'm afraid, but I'm not going to say I'm afraid. I'm not going to say I'm hurt. What I'm going to say is this is bullshit and I'm going to attack and I'm going to accuse and I'm going to ridicule. And the thing just gets worse and worse and worse. I mean, one way of looking at the the political divide that has been, it's hard to measure, but it it, it seems like it's getting worse. It, it was bad in the past and people who don't understand history don't understand that it's always been bad. It was bad back in the beginning of the formation of our of our country in the late 1700s they hated each other i mean literally people did duels and shot each other over political rhetoric they hated each other um you know thomas jefferson and um you know john adams and they anyway the point is is it's always been around it seems to be getting a little bit worse lately and the speculation you could say is that when you have basically open communication through Twitter between left and right, you have a much greater likelihood and a culture of anger and a culture of avoiding hurt feelings and emotions and squishy emotions and primary emotions, then you have this increase in hostility and increase in hurt, increase in pain, and therefore an increase in hostility. And it just sort of is a system and runs away with itself. You know, we don't have a culture at all about compassion. When I, as a left person, suggest to other left people in my left bubble that we should try to take it easy on Republicans, even on people who support Trump, even Trump himself, that we should definitely speak out and definitely advocate and definitely uh, activate and definitely talk about um, policies that should be changed we should definitely be doing that. But when we are so frothing at the mouth, uh, when I suggest that we stop doing that, I don't get, I hardly get anybody agreeing with me. There was, I have a colleague at work that agrees with me and um, we're two of the only people who actually agree with each other. And we'd like, we had a long talk the other day, I actually got a parking ticket because I let my um, conversation go too long. And um, my, my car, the meter had run out. And, but I was like, I don't care if I get a parking ticket. I love this conversation so much. And we were just reveling because we're both lefties. Um, she is a um, extreme left lesbian therapist woman. And, uh, but we were both bonding over the fact that um, although we absolutely support left policies and progressive policies, we are not uh, enthusiastic about the ridicule and the pain and the hostility that the left perpetrates on the right. I always get emails from people saying like, how dare you? 
Trump is a menace to society. Republicans lack empathy. Republicans are um, a menace to society. We need to uh, we need to stand up to them, and that's to me this. And I'm not the uh, conveyor of absolute knowledge and wisdom. I'm one human being who exists among the other 350 million people in the United States who's trying to interpret their world. So who knows? But to me, when I hear that, I think of the analogy that I have that is very similar is when you have a divorcing couple and at first they are trying to work things out amicably, but then they get lawyers who are incentivized to dig in and to protract the fighting between the two parties because the lawyers will get paid more. If, if, if you lawyer up in a divorce and you're not looking and you're not working with a collaborative divorce lawyer, the lawyer and you instantly strike a deal with your spouse, uh, the lawyers will get paid very little money because they didn't have to do much. Whereas if there are constant letters being written back and forth and constant petitions to the court and constant, um, bickering back and forth about the parenting plan and about the retirement plan and what percentage and the, the maintenance fees and blah, 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 maintenance uh, payments that are given between the spouses, who pays for the orthodontist appointments for the kids. Uh, arguments, these micro arguments go on and on and on. The, the lawyer can, can literally make $50,000 from one client, 50, 50 grand. It's not uncommon. I can't remember the average divorce uh, costs, but uh, it's not uncommon for after going through a divorce to incur tens of thousands of dollars in lawyers' fees. And often the uh, deal that is struck between the divorcing couple is pretty standard and could have been predicted from the beginning without any lawyering up. Now, of course, lawyers are good people; they're trying their best, but they are ethically responsible actually for advocating for their client. It's a system that's set up to fight. Um, if you, if you hired a lawyer and they didn't fight for you, it's like, well, why do you have a lawyer in the first place? Right? Anyway, the point is, is that when people tell me like, how dare you have empathy for the other side, we need to stand up to them. They're a menace. It's the exact same distorted thinking and unwise thinking and wrongheadedness that I see when people are in a nasty divorce custody battle, um, battle over money, uh, and they're extremely dug in and extremist in their point of view about the other side, that is distorted and unhelpful. Um, so, uh, so that's that. But the other point here is that if we all pay attention, left and right, to our attachment needs... And we, again, with all that self-help I went through in the previous chapter of just like, okay, what am I feeling right now? Okay, what attachment injury or sensitivity is being touched on in this moment? I'm hearing Donald Trump talk about this, and I feel angry, but what's beneath that anger? Am I afraid? Am I hurt? What attachment injury is being touched upon in this moment? I was sexually assaulted when I was younger. And so this is hypothetical. I'm talking as if I was someone else. I was sexually assaulted when I was younger. And when the when our society elects a 
admitted sexual assaulter to the President of the United States, I am scared because I interpret that as half the United States saying that it's okay to sexually assault people. And I am rationally worried that this will increase the likelihood of me and my loved ones being sexually assaulted. And so I'm scared. When Donald Trump was elected, I was, I'm scared because of that reason. Okay, let's just start there. I'm scared. Let's not get angry. Let's start with fear. Now, imagine if you could actually go to a Trump supporter and say like that. So when you voted for Donald Trump, it made me afraid because I'm worried I'm going to be sexually assaulted because by voting for Donald Trump, I thought that you were, I interpret that as you basically saying that you support sexual assault or that you uh, are going to sexually assault people. And you're, and that you're voting for Donald Trump as a vote for sexual assault and rape and sexual harassment, which really scares me. Now, this conversation would never happen. <laughs> of course, I just can't imagine it. But the Trump supporter says, oh my God, I'm so sorry that that's how you took it. No, I, I absolutely don't support sexual assault. And yeah, the things that Trump said about sexual assault were bad. But I'm not voting for Donald Trump and his proclivity for sexual assault. What I'm voting for is I'm looking for particular appointments to the Supreme Court. I'm looking for particular policies about uh, domestic jobs and trade agreements. I'm looking for Donald Trump to help with um, corruption and the banking between politics and blah, blah, blah. You know, who knows? They're, they're various different, quote-unquote, rational reasons why people voted for Trump. And they're like, no, no, no. You know, I, I absolutely abhor sexual assault. And um, trust me that when I vote for Donald Trump, that's not why I voted for him. Um, and then the uh, person on the left is like, oh, well, thanks for saying that. That makes me feel safer. Now, imagine if those conversations had happened. <laughs> um, uh, on the right, it's like, when you voted for uh, Barack Hussein Obama, I was scared because it felt like half the country wanted to change this nation into a Muslim country that didn't accept white people and would reject white people just because they're white. That's what it felt like to me. And the person on the left says, no, uh, I'm glad you said that. Uh, it makes sense that you would believe that given the rhetoric in the media. That's not why I voted for Barack Obama. I did not vote for him because of uh, those reasons. I voted for Barack Obama because I find him to be an incredible speaker I find him to be incredibly wise and calm for his age. I found him to be, um, he, I just trust his judgment on a lot of things. And I also am inspired by the idea of a black man being president of the United States. It symbolizes to me us moving forward and away from our history of racism and slavery. Um, that That's why I voted for Barack Obama. I don't want to change the nation into a Muslim country. I honestly don't care what religion this country is, but I'm not advocating for the proliferation of Muslim religion. And even if I was, it's it that would never happen. I'm here to tell you that it's it'll be dominated by Christianity for a long time to come. So I wouldn't worry about that. Um. So 
yeah, that's why I voted for Barack Obama. And then the person on the right, like, oh, well, thanks for saying that because it, it, I was worried about that. Now, now I feel safer. I've, and now I feel more attachment security with you, Democrat. Thank you for setting my fears at ease. Those kinds of conversations would solve a lot of our problems. And I hope if you've heard, listened to the other chapters, you see the extreme similarities between couples therapy and the problem in our society right now politically. Um, and I, and I try to use this platform as a way of doing that. When I exhibit uh, empathy for people on the right, when I try to help people have compassion for Republicans, because most of our listeners are, are lefty people, uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to heal that wound and I'm trying to get us to have more empathy for each other. I'm not saying we should not advocate for our positions, our political positions, what, regardless of what they are. Uh, and I'm not saying we shouldn't argue about political positions. You know, if, if you believe strongly that, um, I don't know, something should happen, then, you know, make an argument for it. But it shouldn't be um, within a context that the other side is an enemy, because not only does that make you feel less secure, but it also makes the other side feel less secure, which makes them hurt and angry and then hostile. Anyway, all right, let's go on to another topic here. Let's talk about marginalization. So I've been focusing on attachment to family members, you know, past and current as the cause and cure for bad outcomes. But our larger society is also a mad, massive factor. You know, um, when you have strife in society, this can indirectly affect parents. And strife in society can also directly make children feel afraid. So marginalization and strife can make people feel afraid and unsafe and attachment insecurity. Some groups of people have a massive disadvantage in our society. And as they try to be attuned to their children, it's, it's difficult for them to be attuned to their children. So marginalization is, is a massive problem. Like when you oppress African-Americans, for example, when you make it harder for them to get a job, when you incarcerate them more, when you treat them like shit, when you um, have bad depictions in the media about them that give them low self-esteem, then as a group, the parents are going to be stressed out, more stressed, right? Less money, less happiness, less flexibility, less, um, they're more demoralized, and they're going to be stressed out. And so as they're trying to parent their kids, who are also experiencing racism in society and, and therefore more symptomatic as, as teenagers and kids, then the parents are, uh, the whole family situation gets, gets stressed out to the point where attachment security is less likely to happen. And then guess what happens? Well, that just, just gets passed down from generation to generation, right? And so we have to consider this. We, we always have to consider power marginalization um, when we're looking at attachment. Now, this doesn't mean that we're like, well, no big deal, all, you know, well, uh, let's see what would I say clinically speaking to this. Um, so clinically speaking, if I'm working with an African-American teenager, which um, I've had this conversation with some black kids, is I, I would have this conversation. I, I would say, so let's look at racism in our society. How do you feel about it? And they'd be like, well, you know, this, that, and that. I'd be like, yeah, so, you know, at, with that stress, what do, you, what do you think, how do you think that stress has had an impact on your family and on your parents? And the kid would be like, I don't know, I've never really thought about it. And we have a discussion about 
different possibilities, you know, different uh, stresses that the parents and the family have been through. And I say, so how might this impact your relationships? How might this impact the way you even see your parents? And so seeing that marginalization leads to that conversation. Then you could say, what um, stress do you think that puts, you know, when you add up all that stress, how do you think that affects the parent's ability to pay attention to you when you need to be paid attention to? How do you think it affects their ability to have the resources to um, be attuned to your situation. And then the, the black kid's like, well, I guess, you know, it has an effect. Now, this doesn't erase the damage that was done to the kid, but it can help change the narrative from I am not lovable because my parents didn't love me, or I'm not lovable because my dad abandoned me, or I'm abandonable because my dad abandoned me, Instead, it changes the story to society has been marginalizing my parents since they were born in worse ways than I've been marginalized and mistreated. And that took a toll on them. And they, because of that stress, it led to them having challenges as parents. And it has nothing to do with me. And it has nothing to do with my parents. And it has to do with society. That's a different narrative. It'd be the same as if um, you're talking to a teenager and the mother was, um, she had cancer and was going through chemotherapy for five years and was having trouble paying attention to the kids. And you're talking to the teenager and you're like, and the teenager's like, well, my mom, she's such a cold bitch. And you're like, well, you know, she is going through chemo and that's going to cause a lot of stress and uh, physical ailments and uh, worries about death and all that kind of stuff. And so is it possible that she's just being challenged by her parenting because of that? And then the kid will be like, oh, I guess that's a different narrative. I guess, you know, it doesn't make the abandonment or mistreatment go away, but it does change the meaning of it, right? Which softens the blow a lot of time. Anyway. Um, so other kinds of things to think about are uh, refugee status. I'm just going to throw out a lot of different topics, uh, which could be looked into. And a lot of research has looked into refugee status and attachment style have been looked into. Um, grief and attachment, loss of parents, divorce, having too many children, having too many pets, having financial stress, obviously racism, sexism, ableism, intelligenceism, um, bad parenting practices in our culture, depressed parents is due to racism, all that kind of stuff. So this is all just stuff from my notes. Okay, let's talk about uh, bullying for a second. So I could go on and on about bullying and attachment. There's a fair amount of research, but in a nutshell, just for the sake of time, when you when you're a kid and you have insecure attachment, you're more likely to be bullied and you're more likely to bully other people. So when you have, whenever you're having a, a problem with bullying, you want to think about attachment security and you want to think about how you can help people with their attachment insecurity. And you want to think about how bullying victimization and bullying perpetration is often in large part caused by attachment injuries. So, for example, you have a child who was uh, mistreated growing up and, and doesn't feel secure in their attachments, doesn't feel like they can really turn to other people for secure safety and secure love. And now they're 12 years old, and he is, um, you know, has trouble managing his emotions. He has very low self-esteem, right? And uh, he doesn't know how to cope with that. And so... He finds somebody who seems weak, and he ridicules, beats him up. And what this does is it temporarily makes him feel like he is powerful, like he is better than through schadenfreude of 
I humiliated someone else um, physically. And therefore, by definition, that makes me better than them, which makes me not a terrible person. And that understanding all that would help to treat it, to help to get rid of it. Because a lot of bullying perpetration treatment is to just tell the kid to stop doing it. So you take a attachment insecure person who is acting out of their attachment insecurity, and then you just tell them, um, if you do this again, we're going to kick you out of school, or if you if you do this again, we're, we're going to really punish you. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but it needs to be also done to uh, to really nip it in the bud, which is to help them with their attachment insecurity, help them with their emotional regulation, uh, which is very important. So as promised earlier in another chapter, let's talk about conspiracy theory ideation, meaning when people think about conspiracy theories a lot. There's a, a lot of variation among people, among uh, how, how much they think about conspiracy theories, how many conspiracy theories they adhere to. The definition of a conspiracy theory is, uh, or a belief in a conspiracy theory is, a negative event happens like 9-11, and it's interpreted as an intentional action by people working together to achieve some goal in secret, often outside the law. Belief in conspiracy theories are associated with a lot of different things, um, not necessarily related to attachment. They're associated with uh, general negative consequences for the individual who believes it, cynicism, uh, disengagement from society, distrust of society, it's also associated with openness, which is interesting, right? Which kind of makes sense. You're open to uh, suggestion from other people. I actually have a friend like this who I find her to be incredibly open and flexible when it comes to conversations. You know, she, she's very – she likes new ideas and someone will be saying something and she'll be like, oh, my God, that's so good. I like that. And she, she really falls in love, so to speak, with um, ideas. But she also has a lot of conspiracy theories in her head. So it's like a lot of things get in there, you know. It's also associated with low agreeableness when we're talking about big five. So high openness, low agreeableness, which is interesting. It's also associated with schizotypal personality, which, of course, makes sense because you're more prone to magical thinking. It's also uh, associated with narcissism and stress and um, anime, which is a lack of usual social or ethical standards, uh, psychopathy essentially, distrust of others, and threatening worldviews. So a fair amount of research looking at different personality traits that are associated with conspiracy theory belief. But it's also associated with attachment, which is why I'm talking about it here. So basically the theory goes is that when you're mistreated as a child, you have a choice, as I've been talking about, to either develop a bad working model of others or a bad working model of the self because you're trying to preserve at least one of the working models as being good. And for avoidant people, they will develop a working model that other people are bad and I am good. So this, this coping allows the self to at least believe that um, they themselves are good. And this, uh, this coping style essentially establishes that the outside world and other people are dangerous. They're not to be trusted. They might be deceptive. They might lie to you. They might be untrustworthy. These sorts of people might have actually had parents who were deceptive, lying, untrustworthy. 
this is a common scenario when you are dealing with a parent who is suffering from substance abuse problems. Parents who are suffering from alcoholism or opiate addiction or cocaine addiction or something, meth addiction, they will have the normal desire to love their children and pay attention to their kids. But because of their, uh, their overriding biological and psychological need for their substance, that uh, process of, of using that substance will get in the way of their ability to parent for their kid. And so, uh, and they'll be in a, it usually people are in a cycle. So let's just take someone who drinks. They um, wake up in the morning and they're hungover and they feel very ashamed of having drank too much the night before and they're in a bad mood. And so they're, they're trying to repair. And so they're just trying to get their body back into working order. And once they emerge from that, they, they feel deeply ashamed, but they also feel very repentant of having drank too much. And so they might actually feel uh, sober and good about the future. They might be like, okay, I'm never going to drink again. And then they go to their kids and they, they, they love their kids and they just, and you know, and their kids are like, where were you the past two or three days? Or why were you acting so funny the past two or three days? Or why were you being so violent with, with mommy or daddy the past two or three days? And the alcoholic parent is like, oh my God, I feel so bad. And okay, kids, um, I'm going to be the best parent. We're going to go to Disneyland. I'm going to buy you a bunch of things. Uh, I'm going to spend every day with you, you know, because there's an intention there. But the problem is, is it's motivated by shame and by not necessarily knowing the, the chronic cycle of abuse, of, of uh, substance abuse. And so they make all these promises and they really want them to be true. And then uh, as the next day uh, starts to creep in, um, they start to kind of forget about all the bad consequences of drinking and drinking starts to become more of an option. Someone offers them a drink after work or something. They're like, well, you know, just one drink and then I'll go home and I'll, I'll do all those wonderful things I said I was going to do with my kids. And then one thing leads to another, they over drink uh, and then they feel ashamed. So they go on another binge for that weekend. And then Monday comes along and the kids are like, so you know, what happened to Disneyland? What happened to all those plans we made? And you repeat this over time and the children are going to grow up just going like, my parent is a liar. My parent is lying, you know, because by the hundredth time that you're, the parent is like, okay, I'm really sorry about being gone the past week. Okay. I'm definitely going to be there for your piano recital. I'm definitely going to be there for your birthday party. I'm definitely going to drive you to this or that, or I'm definitely going to buy you this thing. Um, and it gets particularly bad when it's, say, meth addiction or heroin addiction, where the addicted individual will often have to come up with money quickly, and so they will take stuff from the kids and sell it. And so this is, and they won't tell the kids. They won't go like, sorry, kid, I have to sell this. They'll often just just steal it from their own kids and sell it at a pawn shop. And so imagine that one, right? where you're a kid and not only are you being lied to, but suddenly you find that your, your parent has been stealing your stuff and stealing it behind your back. So you grow up with this notion that other people can't be trusted and other people are lying. And even though they, they should care about you, they don't. And it's better to assume the worst than to hope for the best. Because 
when you assume the worst, your expectations are met and you're not as hurt. You're not hurt as much. So by the time you're 13 years old, you're like, don't trust anything that my parent says. Don't count on them for anything. And when they promise you something, do not believe them. Assume that everything they do is a lie because you're better off that way. So then you grow up and you, uh, uh, because we transfer our reactivity from our parents to our spouses, to our coworkers, and to society and to the president of the United States, we will transfer that working model of our addicted parent to the world. And we have this sense of distrust. We have a sense that we can't depend on them. We have a sense that they're, that society has ill intent for us. And then we start to go to the internet and we look for, for somebody to confirm what we're thinking and feeling. And we find different pockets of people on the internet that are more than willing to, um, you know, propagate these ideas. Many of whom I believe anecdotally are trying to repair or they're trying to cope with the fact that they grew up with a very deceptive, neglectful, mistreating parent. This obviously can be true if you were sexually abused by a parent or a, or a family member because they will often be deceptive and and extremely untrustworthy, obviously. So you you grow up and you go to the internet and you find this confirmation and then every bit of detail that can be interpreted in a gray zone, you interpret as the conspiracy theory because it feels better to feel like you have some power in the same way that when you were 13 years old and you're like, you know, when I was younger, I didn't realize that my father was a liar and I just believed everything he said and and that really hurt. But now I, I've woken up and I see the light and I know that my father is a liar and everything he says needs to be questioned, and I need to keep him at arm's length, and I need to be very suspicious of him, and I need to not give in to him, and I need to not trust him, and I need to not open my heart to him, because that it, I will get hurt. What a wonderful, comfortable, comfortable place that I've arrived to that is a reaction to a difficult situation. Before, I didn't know this, and I was lost, but now I know, and I have this that I can depend on this conceptualization of my dad that everything he does is a lie and that he is deceptive and I need to protect myself from him. I might even have to lock up my possessions because he might steal it. When he calls me on the phone and when I haven't heard from him in a week, I have to be very suspicious because he might actually be trying to get something from me. Well, it's so it's comfortable to adopt that perspective, even though the overall situation is very uncomfortable. Well, when you grow up and you have that coping style, it's a temptation to gravitate towards comfort by adopting the conspiracy theory mentality because it feels better to have landed on something that you feel so sure about. So you might land on the conspiracy that, um, I don't know, well, flat earthers, for that matter. I mean, let's just go there. You are you grow up mistreated, you grow up very distrustful, and then you're an adult and you're kind of generally unsafe feeling. You, your relationships aren't going well, your career is not going so great, 
And then you find this conspiracy theory talk on the internet about how the earth is really flat. And you're not very educated, so you don't know any better. And so you think, huh, well, this, this is interesting. How interesting would it be if the earth actually was flat? And then you start to read a little bit more, and then, and then it starts to feel very congruent and very appealing. Not that it's intellectually appealing, it's actually emotionally appealing. And so, uh, and then you find there's a community online of other flat earthers, and you can bond with them. I'm, I'm sure that flat earthers, many of them, are only flat earthers because they want to be a part of a club of people who will love them and pay attention to them and give them companionship and friendship. You know, two flat earthers in the world are very likely to be very good friends in the same way that when I'm at a uh, WS, a Washington State University sports bar and I'm with, you know, two of my friends who are from University of Washington, our bond is much stronger because we are in the midst of the enemy. So when you have two flat earthers in a room, they're going to be very friendly with each other and very partial towards each other, very instant bond because they're in the midst of the enemy all the time. So not only are you facilitating attachment security by joining the flat earth community, but you're also confirming a comfortable notion that the world and those in power are to be distrusted. It's a, it's a feeling of power to know things about people in power. Imagine if you could go to Donald Trump's brain and actually know his mind, to know, to be able to read his mind. Imagine, but, and there's nothing you could do about it. Let's say you only can read his mind, and, but there's no way you're ever going to be able to actually do anything about it. Imagine how uh, gratifying that would feel to be like, oh, I get it. That's why he does that. And that's, that's what really happened there. And that, even though you have no ability to do anything, it just feels good to know things. And so when you're generally anxious and you feel general insecurity about attachments, it feels good to know something and to know that the world is stupid, to know that everyone is a sheep, to know that NASA and the, and the government are working together to propose this spherical earth theory as a way of keeping everybody down, or I don't, I don't know why that, I don't know the particulars on that conspiracy theory, but it, it just feels better to know, to know something. And it absolutely confirms their general worldview that people in authority are always to be mistrusted. So this is associated with avoidant attachment style, which is also associated with narcissistic tendencies, right? So when you're forced to believe that you're good and other people are bad to deal with mistreatment, you, by definition, you believe your own notions more readily than you believe other people's notions because other people are stupid because you're slight, you're on the narcissistic spectrum. And so when someone else comes along and says, um, no, actually the world is spherical, you're like, well, I think other people are stupid and therefore you're stupid and therefore the things you say are stupid. So I don't really believe you. Whereas I kind of feel like the earth is flat, and so I, I'm pretty much going to stick with that. That's a narcissistic tendency, right? Also, in a similar vein, it, when we are terrified, we always try to find answers. So after 9-11, we were all terrified. If you're old enough to remember this, 
I was terrified. And I'm not prone to that kind of fear, but it was terrifying. And the anthrax thing happened right after that. It felt like our country was never going to recover. It felt like our country was going to be constantly under attack after that. It, it, after 9-11, after the anthrax thing, it was like, so this is our new reality where terrorist groups live amongst us and are, uh, you know, month by month picking us off until we're all dead. That's what it felt like. And it was extremely scary. And so we naturally were trying to look for a cause so that we could prevent it from happening again. Now, in reality, there were many factors involved, various figures in the Middle East, various figures in our own government, various figures in economic power around the world, the actions of our own government in the Middle East and around the world, religion, um, ideology, politics, history, oil, etc. There were so many things that played into why 9-11 happened. It was, it was very confusing, particularly to Americans. Like, well, why did they attack us? Like, what's the deal here? Well, if you have avoidant attachment style, again, you, be, you have narcissistic beliefs, and so you're, you're looking for answers, and you kind of fall in love with your own ideas. And so if you hate George Bush and you're looking for an easy answer, then you're going to be like, oh, well, George Bush must have conspired to um, do a controlled demolition of the World Trade Center, and that's why, that, that's why 9-11 happened. It had nothing, it had nothing to do with oil or history or Middle East or religion or the actions of our government or the rise of particular political ideologies in the Middle East or the rise of or the history of colonialism and control of the Middle East by Western powers. It has nothing to do with uh, you know, a vast system of all those kinds of things. It was George Bush, because I hate George Bush, and that makes it easier for me to cope with because I, I, I can say it in one sentence. 9-11 happened because George Bush. And um, you could see how that would be tempting, right? You could see how it would be impervious to logic, especially if you're insecurely attached and you have a need for some way to make yourself feel more secure. This coping style upholds your narcissistic notions that you know everything. It upholds the um, the need to transfer. So you can say that I have a target for my transference. It's George Bush's fault. In the same way that I hated my father, I hate George Bush. In the same way I mistrusted my father, I mistrust George Bush. It also fits with the immature notions of black and white, good and evil, um, which... Um, is often retained when we're mistreated into adulthood. You know, we start off as young children as thinking very black and white. And when we have attachment injuries, we tend to retain that black and white thinking into our adulthood. So there's a lot of reasons why, in my opinion, conspiracy theory tendencies are related to attachment insecurity. All right, well, that does it for the fourth chapter in the attachment theory deep dive. Uh, Stay tuned for the next chapter, and we'll get into a lot of other things. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Really, really, really do.